cars and races My baby don't care for Day in 1987, Nina Simone charted with the re-release of her 1958 song "My Baby Just Cares for Me," thanks to its use in a Chanel Number no. Five perfume. It peaked at 82 originally. It'd be a minor hit for Nina Simone, uh, but it would later revitalise her career and introduce her to a new generation of fans. And Rolling Stones wrote that she had one of the most affecting voices of the civil rights movement, one of the most gifted vocalists of her generation. She's loved or feared, adored or disliked, Maya Angelou wrote in 1970. But few who have met her musical glimpse to soul react with moderation and never a truer word spoken, Peter Dunn. Nothing like putting on a bit of Nina Simone, putting the slippers on, Feet up and just closing her eyes. And, and that uh, little introductory piece before before the vocal is just so um, it's so familiar. You know, the moment yeah. it began, I knew I knew what was coming. It's a great piece of oh, music. Oh yes, that motive, the piano motive. Yeah. yeah, it's just fantastic. Yeah, great, isn't it, Andrew? Yeah, lovely. I don't know it as well as Peter's. <laughs> <laughs> Peter's but all lovely. over it. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. All right, it's 25 to 5. Uh, look, by the way, um, back to dogs very briefly. People are um, saying that I'm displaying bias um, in favour of small dogs. Not at all. I'm just saying that um, little dogs are far less aggressive than big dogs. It's just what I'm saying. Um, but people do not, they do not agree. Wallace, I totally disagree with you about this. Chihuahuas are particularly aggressive. Size does not predict the temperament of a dog. Owners need to control their dogs in any public place. Uh, little dogs are the worst behaved and most likely to behave badly. But big dogs take the rap. <laughs> Our large dogs would never get away with the behaviour that small dogs exhibit. Small does not mean well behaved. Thank you for your correspondence this afternoon. The panel, Anjum Rahman and Peter Dunn with me today. Now, this week is World Antimicrobial Awareness Week. Latest estimates, get this, 1.2 million people died in 2019 as a result of antibiotic-resistant bacterial infections. That's around the world, 1.2 million. Uh, and in fact, it played a part in almost 5 million deaths. And the World Health Organization considers antibiotic resistance as one of the biggest threats to global health today. To chat about this, we have microbiologist Dr. Susie Wiles. Dr. Wiles, kia ora. Kia ora. I was quite stunned, actually, by those stats. Um that quite something. Yeah, and, you know, it's getting worse, and the pandemic certainly hasn't helped because a lot of people at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, were given antibiotics uh, because oh. we know that people who have viral infections end up getting sort of secondary bacterial infections. But, you know, even before the pandemic, the prediction was that these um, resistant infections are going to kill more people than cancer within a few decades. So, yeah, it's a, it's a big Good issue. Heavens. It's sort of like a silent yes. <laughs> silent um, problem that's sort of coming up. And people don't really feel it much at the moment. Um, but by the time people do feel it, it's 
going to be very difficult to reverse it. Susie, on a very fundamental uh, fundamental level, what might it mean? So say you, you go to hospital here, you have surgery, you have um, a knee operation, you have a stomach operation, uh, all goes well. But the problem is a little bit of infection, you have antibiotics, a small problem. Um, uh, they're not responding. Yeah, that, that's the issue, right? That, that, mm. um, that these drugs that we really rely on to do surgery safely, you know, for people to have chemotherapy safely, that they are no longer going to be um, going to be usable, and so people will die of, you know, really common, you know, previously treatable infections. And at the moment, you know, we're we're starting to see the the bacteria become more resistant, so they might require different drugs. So, for example, you know, before it might have been you could take an oral antibiotic, and now it might be an injection, or you need to be in hospital. So. Things are already impacting, but not quite in that really disastrous way. Although there are some bacteria that are incredibly resistant and, and that there are yeah. very little drugs left, but they're not causing huge numbers of the infections just yet. I was in hospital last year uh, and, uh, you know, and, and a person beside me, he was, he, he had an operation and they were, he was in for extra time because they were trying to get uh, uh, the um, antibiotics to actually work. They weren't, they were finding a bit, of, a bit tough on that. Um, it would, needless to say, it would be very concerning if you were a, uh, a doctor uh, in the operating theatre, hospital staff, and this is an increasing problem. Yeah, and what's also really interesting is that, you know, a lot of these bacteria, they can live up in our noses or in our guts and cause us no problems at all, you know, until they end up in our bloodstream. And so there's lots of people around the world here in New Zealand that could be carrying these resistant superbugs already, probably are carrying these resistant superbugs already, but they're not really causing any problems. But, you know, if you end up in hospital, they end up in the wrong place, or you inadvertently give them to somebody else who's, you know, vulnerable. That's when they cause big problems. And this is why, you know, we want people washing their hands and doing all those kinds of things that we know are really good ways to help prevent um, these these bacteria transmitting between people. It's back to that old-fashioned way. It's back to the old (laughs) washing of hands, Uh, Susie. Yeah, Uh, Peter Dunn. Well, one of the things that surprised me reading reading, um, the article was... uh, the, the fact that people share their antibiotics and the, the misuse of antibiotics that way, it never occurred to me that people would be sharing their medicines with someone else. And uh, I can understand the risks that that, that creates, but uh, how widespread is the practice? I actually don't know how widespread it is in New Zealand, but it's certainly, you know, it is certainly something that happens. And I think, I mean, I got a, a, an email today in response to my column, actually. It was not a particularly nice email, but, you know, what the person was raising was that, Access to healthcare is really difficult in some communities, right? And so if you can't afford to get to the GP or if it's, you know, there's, there's no appointments because they're so overwhelmed, then you know, this might be one reason why people are, you know, maybe not, they, they might take their antibiotics and when they start to feel better, they'll stop taking them, which is not the way we want people to take their mm. antibiotics. But then they'll have a little bit left over thinking, oh, well, you know, I'll keep this for next time. And what, we, what you don't know is that next time we'll need the same antibiotic from for starters. Um, but also, you know, we've heard stories of people sharing them. Um, and, you know, what you don't know is whether that antibiotic is going to be appropriate for that person, whether it's still in date, or whether it's going to interfere with their other drugs. So, um, you know, while I don't know what the scale of the problem is, mm. we do know that it happens and it happens mm. everywhere. Um, and so what we're, what we're asking this World Antimicrobial Awareness Week is um, that people uh, actually just take any of their unused drugs back to the pharmacy, because, you know, we're calling it an antibiotic amnesty. So take it in, 
don't just tip them down the sink or put them in the rubbish because that basically puts the drug in the environment and the environment is full of bacteria that, you know, we don't want exposed to it. Um, take it back to the pharmacy and then they'll destroy it for you. Okay, so take it back to the pharmacy. Do not. Uh, we were talking about this in the office, actually. Uh, you know, sort of uh, eyes wide open, my God. I've tipped it down the drain. But a clear message to send it back to the pharmacy. Andrew. Yeah, um, first of all, hi Susie, I'm a huge fan of yours, so, um, and I reckon you could have been on the hate speech bit as well. <laughs> but yeah, I actually know people um, that share antibiotics, I'm not going to out them on right. um, Radio New Zealand, but definitely happens, definitely happens. And I think people, certainly older people, they've grown up with this comfort factor um, around antibiotics and got used to being prescribed them quite regularly. And so patients will demand them. And again, I know people who absolutely demand that their doctors give them antibiotics. Um, I don't know. I feel like um, the medical research now needs to invent a new form of medicine. I mean, antibiotics were what I was looking it up in the 1920s that we started using antibiotics. So 100 years on, I think the way that we save humanity is trying to figure out a new technology, a new drug that gives us the ability to to deal with these illnesses because I've been hearing about superbugs for years and years now and and these warnings have been around for years and it it really isn't shifting people to change. Yeah, I mean, so there's two issues here. One is is behaviour change, right? And and you're absolutely right. We know that people demand them for themselves and their pets and so getting that message across. Actually, many times it's not the best thing, right? If you've got a viral infection, they're really not the right drug for you. (laughs) Um, But the other thing is that people like me have been yelling about this for years, but there's been very little investment in this area, right? Very little investment in new medicines. And you're absolutely right that we do need, you know, alternatives. But we also know um, that actually by preventing infection, that's a really good way of dealing with it. Yes. And ways we, we prevent infection, you know, depend on the bacteria, but having access to good housing, right? You know, we know that there's huge problems in, in overcrowded housing, and we know that there's huge problems when, you know, housing is damp. Um, and doing the basics, like washing hands, like wearing masks when people are unwell, all of these things will prevent infection, and then you won't need an antibiotic um, or another drug. Interesting, isn't it, how that all, it all feeds back to that, the, the, the simple stuff. Uh, interesting hearing Susie right now. I'm currently having a course uh, because of a dental abscess. My problem is I'm allergic to penicillin, so the choice of drug is limited. Uh, is this a common problem for resistance? But here's one, uh, Susie. Can you ask uh, Dr. Wiles? Oops, quite a bit of response on this. Uh, if antibiotic resistance is because we have used too many broad-spectrum antibiotics rather than targeted antibiotics? That's a great question. Um, I, so resistance is a global problem, um, and, it, and it is because we've been overusing, and by we I mean humanity, has been overusing them in every sphere of life, right? So in human medicine, in, in animals, uh, in plants, you know, they're often used... Um, to combat uh, bacterial infections. Like, remember our kiwifruit um, PSA? That's a bacterial disease, and antibiotics were sprayed on kiwifruit to, to combat that. So, And certainly using broad-spectrum, which are antibiotics that kill a lot of different species rather than narrow ones, and that, is certainly, that has certainly been an issue. Goodness. But, but that's partly also what these drugs are like. These, there aren't antibiotics that kill individual types of bacteria, so, uh, you know, individual species. Um, so coming up with better ways to, to treat infections 
Um, and the other actually big issue is diagnosing them. So this is a, a problem we've found through COVID, right, is that uh, when, when an infection starts, is it bacterial, is it viral, what kind of virus, what kind of bacteria? And so having better ways to very quickly tell what does somebody have, is it bacterial, is it virus, and then what, what if it is bacterial, what antibiotic will work so the right antibiotic can be given to that patient at the right time, that has been a big challenge that has still not really been solved. And do you think there's a role for pharmacists here in terms of their um, mm. greater familiarity with the various medications that are becoming available to assist doctors in their prescribing practice? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, this, um, so this an- antibiotic amnesty has actually been driven by, you know, pharmacists and things. So I think they're doing an amazing job, actually. Um, it's just we need everybody understanding what the messages are. And actually, Wallace, it was really interesting you hear- hearing you are allergic to penicillin because one, what last year's campaign was all about was actually encouraging people to get tested to find out if they really are allergic because there has been some research suggesting that lots of people who think they're allergic actually probably aren't anymore. Um, and if you are, you know, if you are considered allergic, you do you do kind of lose a really important drug and get given something else instead. So that might be something for you to, to um, check it out, whether you can... There's, there's, quite a, there's really good, great questions coming through about our antibiotics, and we have, haven't got time. We might have to do another sort of section on this, Susie, because <laughs> there's quite a bit of fascination. But for now, kia ora, appreciate your time. Uh, that okay, is a microbiologist, Dr Susie Wiles, on this. Uh, by the way, some breaking news here. The International Emmy for short form series goes to Rurangi, uh, produced by Autonomous. So um, some um, some news there. The International Emmy for short form series goes to Rurangi, produced by Autonomous. Thirteen to five, the panel. Now, an international traveller lashed out on a private Facebook group about their disappointing experience trying to freedom camp in Aotearoa. But freedom camping isn't once what it was, and tighter rules are on the horizon. With summer to come, there are still ways to get out and camp in beautiful places. To discuss, we have Tourism Industry Aotearoa Communications Manager, Anne-Marie Johnson. Welcome to the programme. Thank you for having me. Very good to have you here. So it came out, you know, sort of a complainer, a whinger, said, look, I've been here for two weeks and I find it so hard to find any nice spot. No patch of grass, end up in car parks. What's your response? Well, I do wonder where that person was camping. Certainly (laughs) if she was, I think it was a she, she was in a city, then um, yes, she is going to wind up in a concrete jungle. But yeah, as you say, there are so many places around New Zealand where you can get out in the, our amazing bush and um, camp either, if not for free, then certainly for a very small amount. And if you want to pay a bit more, there are enormous amounts of options out there for you as well. Yeah, I brought you on because this could be a you know a cost-effective option, Anne-Marie, of actually taking a bit of a break. It doesn't cost a huge amount of money per day. Um, but freedom camping is regulated by bylaws and different in every region. Many regions you can't without a self-contained vehicle. Uh, are there any regions where you still can? I don't know so much about across regions, mm. but certainly there are spots where you can. And um, the the main apps for camping um, will be able to point you in the direction of, uh, of, of options that have um, toilet facilities, so you don't need a self-contained vehicle, or else they can um, tell you where to go, where you will be able to camp 
um, in a tent, for instance, because obviously tents aren't self-contained either. Yeah. Now, Andrew, uh, are you a camper? Are you a uh, from a? Cam- Do you love camping? I'm not a huge uh, a camper myself. Oh God, people would kind of think I'm terrible. Honestly, not liking animals a lot. <laughs> not, not a camper. I need my electric blanket. I need my hot shower. I need a Got nice it. mattress. I Got don't. It. Don't have anything, but yeah. I do have stuff to say about this. Yeah. God, I sound like such a diva, don't I? <laughs> um, I think, you know, the, there's also with the freedom, freedom camping, there's, there's a problem with tourists, but we're also living in a housing crisis. And, you know, we might call it freedom camping, but there are a lot of people that need just place to bunk down. They don't have homes. Um, they're living in their cars and so on. And I don't know whether we go to something like maybe a uniform charge of $5 or $10 for every person that lands in the country so that we oh. have either spaces available like toilets that are maintained and showers that are maintained and, and have a little bit of investment so that there are spaces where people can camp out that, that want to or that need to. Stay, stay there, and Marie Peter Dunn. You would be a camper from way back. Way back, yes. Big, not, big not, tent, not, not now, gas but, but way back. Um, but my feeling about when I read the comment from this person was that uh, I just think they're being a bit precious, really. I think there's an attitude amongst some overseas visitors that they've come to New Zealand. It's still a bit of a backwater. They can do what they like, not abide by our rules, and they're horrified when we have some. And I just don't think we should be uh, giving into them this way. Um, you know, good God, as Emery said, if, if you want to sort of camp in central Auckland, it's not going to be hard. So it's not going to be easy to find a, a, a sort of a, a lux- luxuriant park to do so. But if you want to go further afield, then you can and probably enjoy yourself. And I think maybe maybe this person and others of her ilk should just get out there and enjoy the great out there outdoors, not whinge about them. It's good heavens above. A strong words there from Peter. Oh, finally, Anne Marie. So, um, tips. Where can I go? Where's the where, where's the app to go? It's quite. A, you got quite a good website actually. Talk, talking about freedom camping. Yeah, TIA actually runs a website which is camping.org.nz, and that provides loads of links through to the um, to the apps that I'm talking about. Um, you can also find information on what the rules are in re- each region um, and just some general tips on camping in New Zealand. I mean, we would always recommend that campers do stay in a holiday park or at least a dock campsite or some sort of designated um, camping space uh, where they are not going to upset the local community and where there are facilities that they can use. There you go, family of four, around 60 to 70 bucks a night. Uh, not cheap, but uh, won't necessarily break the bank. Anne-Marie Johnson, kia ora, thanks for your time. Uh, Anne-Marie's from the Tourism Industry Aotearoa Communications um, uh, sector. And we are going to be putting to bed once and for all this small dog malarkey uh, at the end of the show. But first, snooker. Completely useless at it, that's me. But you might have grown up with legends like the bowtied Steve Davis and Dennis Taylor, the guy who wore those oversized snooker glasses. Legendary. An era where snooker reigned supreme. Sitting down watching this show. Da, 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 da. 
Hot Black, which, by the way, was the brainchild of David Attenborough. Well, Snooker's alive and well in Gore, where the 2022 Snooker Champs were held. Local man Shannon Swain battled Auckland's Deepak Bala to take the crown. Dave Judd is tournament director. Dave, welcome. Yeah, good afternoon. How are you? Good. Remember that, Pop Black? Oh, very much so indeed. I used to watch it when I was a small one with my dad. Um, and that's how we grew up with the family and, you know, watching the uh, Pop Black series uh, when it was uh, back in the 80s. Who recalls Pop Black 2101 text? How did the champs go? The champs, uh, it, was, it went very, very well. Uh, started on the Wednesday. Um, we had a very quality field um, of number of players and um, they did a round robin um, on the Wednesday through session play and Thursday and then of course we got straight into the knockout stages where um, four of the players went through straight through to the quarterfinals where a uh, further eight players had to battle it out at each other to meet those four in the quarterfinals um, and of course you know with the quarterfinals looming in that it was definitely that was the definitely knockout stages so that's where you had to um, really be on your game for all the players. Uh, basically, most of the um, top seeds got through. Um, the likes of the, well, was then the um, the current um, the current uh, New Zealand number one and uh, the defending champion. Um, and you know he was through and nice there one, was Dave. A number two, yeah. Anjum, so, Anjum, uh, you don't like dogs. You never camped. You must be a snooker player. Well, I wish, I wish I was. No, no, not a sneaker player. But what I did want to comment on around this is how much sport has been taken off free-to-air TV and some of these lesser-known mm. sports. And I think that is really, when you look at um, the stats for young kids getting into sport and being active and so on, the ability to watch just sports that aren't generally not rugby and not netball um, is really critical. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, our guests talking about watching this when they were young and being inspired by it, I think we really should have the opportunity. I personally wouldn't watch it, but I do want people to have the opportunity to wa- watch sports like this free to wear. Bring back Pot Black. Stay there, David. Peter. Oh, yes. Look, I, I remember when Pot Black came and played a series at Parliament. You're Palm, kidding me. This would be back in the no. 80s. They filmed a no. series there. Yep. And the story behind it is they wanted to use Parliament's billiard room, which was open to no one but MPs. And the deal that was eventually done after a lot of toing and froing was that since these players would be the best in the world, they would require the best of equipment, i.e. tables, balls, cues, etc. So they could use Parliament's billiards room for their television series, provided they what? had the best of equipment. And when they finished filming, they went home and they left the equipment in Parliament. David, did you hear about this? Yeah, I was actually there. The like Stephen Hendry. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. It was called. Yeah, it's back then. It was called the uh, the Benson and Hedges series. That's right. Uh, yeah, and, B and H. Uh, yeah, B and H series. Yep. Yeah, and uh, basically, yeah, there was the likes of when Stephen Hendry was coming onto the scene. Um, a few other top players were there off the pro pro um, ranking list back then. Um, I was very fortunate with my dad that I was able to. He was able to take me along and um, view this, and, um, yeah, um, it's a pity that we don't 
have that sort of thing, get the pros back over here sort of thing. But we are working on it as the main body. We are working on um, getting a professional over here and going around the countryside. So well, keep, it, space. keep it going, Dave, because the pop black lovers are sending their texts through, watched it every week of appearance, even went to see Ray Reardon and Hurricane Higgins play mm. Love It, says Dave. Dave oh, yes. Oh, all the best. Thanks for being with us there. That's Dave Judd, tournament director, so Snooker is live and well in Gore. Finally, uh, it's just before the end of the show, and I have been um, uh, inundated with um, messages saying, Wallace, you're clueless about little dogs. So finally, I'm going to get a, be getting a little bit of a telling off this afternoon, and Jenny in Topor is going to give it to me. Jenny. Hi, Wallace. Hello. Hi. Yeah. I, I was a meat reader in Wellington for about 12 years, uh-huh. back in the late 80s, early 90s. And I was bitten many a time by dogs, small ones as well as big ones. Are you sure? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, there's one dog that I still remember to this day, because he was on my regular round. His name was Boris. Boris. And he was a jack. Russell. Uh-huh. And he was he was like he was on springs. He was, Chihuahua? Uh, Chihuahua? No, uh, uh, Jack Russell. Uh, Jack Jack Russell. All yeah. right. Okay. Bigger than Chihuahua. Do I need to say sorry to the country? Um yeah, yeah, the little dogs can be just as aggressive. Jeannie, you've made our day, you've made our afternoon, you put me in my place. Small dogs can be aggressive, we'll come back to you. Uh, Andrew Rahman, Peter Dunn, lovely to have you on the programme. Kia ora. Kia ora. Uh-huh, I'm Wallace Chapman. Back tomorrow, 3.45. Checkpoints next.